Guys, welcome to another huge episode of Trigger. Tonight's episode is going to be a fun one. We have two great guests. Both are really important with perspectives on how to restore American prosperity, to gain back voters, to, and to take back power in November. We'll be speaking with Tennessee Senator Marsha Blackburn and North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum. Two different perspectives, one from the federal level representing the states, the other being the CEO of a state with what's going on, people who understand at the highest levels. We're going to cover a lot of strategy, a lot of policy, and most importantly, a lot of solutions. So I need you guys to like, share, and subscribe so you don't miss any of these episodes. I'm only on two days a week. Uh, we're working on maybe doing some more uh, with Rumble, but because it's not regularly scheduled, you know, subscribe so that you get a notification when we go on. Remember that you can also find these episodes on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. So if you know people who get their podcasts that way, send it to them, share it to them. Maybe if you're going to be traveling or whatever, and that's an easier way for you to do it, it's there. Need you to subscribe. That's how we push back. That's how we get together. And that's how we take on the world. You can also find more coverage of this show and all of my top stories on my news app, MXM News. You can get that um, you know, on the Apple uh, iTunes store. You can get it on Google store, uh, the usual places. It's where you get the mainstream news without the mainstream bias. The other side's always telling us to build our own We've done that. We're trying to get you the stuff that's not curated by Google, but actually curated by me, where you're actually going to see the things that matter. So together, we are getting the message out because it's all of you who make the show possible, along with some of our incredible sponsors. We have really some great people who have the guts to support programming like this, and that includes Several new sponsors, including the 1775 Coffee Company, which is brewed to perfection, crafted with precision, and built on patriotism. 1775's coffee is a farm-to-cup process. That means there's quality, authenticity, and sustainability from start to finish. All the beans are ethically and exclusively single-sourced from the finest farms in Bolivia. And guys, we talk about it all the time. You don't want to give your money to some woke coffee chain that hates your guts and is actually taking your hard-earned money and funding it against you. Give it to companies that actually share your values. It's why 1775 Coffee is joining forces with Rumble to support the causes that matter most. Your purchase helps support veteran causes, groups fighting to protect the First Amendment, the right to keep and bear arms, and so much more. So go to 1775coffee.com slash Don Jr. 1775coffee.com slash D-O-N-J-R for 10% off your first order. Now, with that, joining me, incredible senator from the great state of Tennessee, Senator Marsha Blackburn. Uh, senator, there's, there's so much to get into with everything that's going on right now. I feel like we're oftentimes living a simulation uh, the discord between Washington and sort of the people that they're elected to represent seems perhaps bigger than we've ever seen it before. But I, I want to start by getting your big picture view you know, on the trajectory of the country as a whole under Joe Biden. And how confident are you that we can actually get this country back on track, given given how far we've gone off the rails? 
Well, Don, I'm delighted to join you. Thank you for inviting me to be on your podcast. And the good thing about getting this country back on track is that the American people are waking up. And whether I'm in Tennessee or out campaigning for some of our Republican Senate candidates, I meet people every single day who grab my arm and they say, Marsha, I never in my life thought I would be witnessing what I'm witnessing right now. What can we do about it? How are we going to do this? And of course, my instruction to them is to, first of all, get registered to vote if they're not. Be sure all their families registered to vote and get their friends to the polls to vote early and be sure that they vote for President Donald Trump. And that is a way that we're going to get this country back on track. And thank goodness that people are paying attention. Yeah. And I think, you know, obviously the president's a big one. You've seen sort of what sort of the stroke of the pen on some of these insane executive orders from Joe Biden can be. But I think it's important for people to also get involved all the way down the line. I mean, I think we've given up so much as a country by, you know, not being involved in, let's call it, you know, the school board races. I mean, at, at this point, I think we have to get involved in the dog catcher races because, uh, candidly, the left will and they'll figure out a weapon, a way to weaponize all that. Of course they will. And I like to say from the courthouse to the state house to the White House. Republicans in 2024 are going to have to come together. They're going to need to unite and say, we are in a fight for survival of this nation. And it is imperative that we make certain that we elect good, solid conservatives, elect Republicans to office. I, I think without question, I guess these days, there's been a lot of pushback from the America First base on this recent foreign aid package. Obviously, we're talking about you know sixty billion more uh, for Ukraine, uh, you know more for Taiwan, more for Israel, and you're one of the few people that pushed back on this uh, in the United States Senate. One of the few Republicans actually that pushed back. It would put you in the minority there a lot. Do you see the misplaced priorities in Washington? I think many Americans feel like Washington's just literally putting foreign borders above our own. And it's sort of hard to disagree with them at this point. And uh, people are so frustrated about it. Don, what I think is happening here, the American people see the impact of illegal immigration in their communities every single day. They see it because they have friends and relatives that are dying from fentanyl poisoning. It is the biggest killer of kids 18 to 45 years old. Now think about that when they see the impact of human trafficking and sex trafficking. They see what is happening with illegal immigration and illegal immigrants being bussed into their communities. And then with our veterans, they're going, wait a minute, why will we not secure our border? And then we go talk about other borders and of course, we don't want Putin to win. We don't want Xi Jinping to win. But we have to have a strong America in order to make sure they don't win. And when you have terrorists, when you have people that are from countries of interest coming into our border, you know 
you have to make certain we tend to our border first so that we never have another 9-11. Yeah, and I mean, there's no question some of that's happening yeah. right now. I mean, you know, everyone, the Democrats sound, but they're going to make our country better. It's like, I'm not, you know, I'm not sure. It doesn't seem like what I'm seeing coming across the people beating up cops in New York. They weren't making their country better. I don't know that they're going to make our country better. Uh, and that seems pretty apparent. I mean, this reminds me sort of, you know, what happened in Cuba uh, you know, where they just sort of, hey, you know what? Take all the criminals, Take just get them out of our system uh, <laughs> and send them to America because there's, there's almost no other way to interpret a lot of what's going on, especially when you see the video of all these sort of fighting age males at the border. Uh, this, is, this is not a sort of a cross-section of the countries that they're fleeing. It's very specific. Yes, and in a three-month period of time when you have 24,000 Chinese mostly young men of military age that are coming to that border. We know there's a better way to address this. Let me take you back in history, recent history a little bit. When Barack Obama was president in Crimea, uh, the issue with Russia going into Crimea, Obama sent them blankets and meals ready to eat. Donald Trump comes in. And what does President Trump send Ukraine? Javelin missiles and armor so they could defend themselves. And before Putin invaded Ukraine, I sent a letter to the White House and I said, look, you can look at the satellite imagery. You can see he is amassing his troops. You can see what they are doing. Please, let's begin selling them what they need to protect themselves. And, you know, there are programs we can do like the Lin Lease program that I did with Taiwan Mm -hmm. that would allow them to get what they need and pay us back at some point in the future. But what we have to make certain is that there is a strategy that they can define a win and that there is accountability. And Don, at this point, we don't have any of those three. And we have a weak president, and we have Vladimir Putin who does not fear him. Yeah, what what does, you know, again, I, I, I've done this sort of around the country. As you know, I speak to a lot of groups. I've, I've been with you at these places, you know, ar- around America. And I've, I've done sort of the survey, you know, is Ukraine funding a top three priority, a top 10 priority for, I got one guy one time, except for a, a recent one, one guy one time said it was a top 10. And this is in front of like 35,000 people that I've now done this each time I speak in front of a group of 500 to 5,000 one guy, and he, you know, he happened to be from Ukraine, so I gave up a pass. I spoke, I guess it was last weekend at Washington and Lee University, a little bit closer to yeah. you know, the Beltway, and and maybe like two, three percent of the room of about a thousand, uh, you know, said it was a top ten priority. Almost no one said it was a top three priority. Mitch McConnell, you know, I, I, I give that to the Beltway. Obviously, that's going to be a little closer. But in real America, one person who happened to be from Kiev. Um, Mitch McConnell continues to tell us it's a number one priority for Republicans. That's not the case. It's just, it's not accurate. Uh, But he has yet to articulate what actual victory looks like. Uh, You know, other than just spending, you know, our grandchildren's future, uh, you know, to enrich a couple of his buddies in the military industrial complex. What does that look like? You're in these meetings. You're in these closed door meetings. Have they articulated what victory means other than, you know, what I see is, which is like the elimination of every, you know, man, woman, and child in Russia, which it seems like, you know, that's what they're going for. And the problem is all you're getting is a lot of that in the Ukraine. 
Uh, it, none of it makes any sense to me. It's just death uh, with no well, real articulated goals. Um, ha has that been made more clear to you or, or are you still it has not. unclear? And I have asked specifically when we're dealing with Ukraine, tell me what your strategy is and tell me how you classify a win. What does a win look like? You know, Don, you've had a fabulous business career, still do. And generally, when you're looking at something, you will begin with the end in mind. You think about what is an exit strategy. I want to know what that is when we're talking about Ukraine. What does a win look like? And under President Trump, we could define what our relationship was with countries. Our friends knew they were our friends. Our enemies knew to fear us under Joe Biden. They do not fear him. So therefore, they see us as being weak and they feel like they can take advantage of us. This is why some of us are saying, look, we want some accountability. Where is the money in Ukraine being used? How are we using it? What are the accountabilities on that? What is going for humanitarian aid? What is going for propping up the government, and then what is going for military aid? Yeah. The American people deserve to know because this is not government's money, it's the people's money. Yeah, and the fact that, I mean, they, they seem so just wanton waste with it. it you know, they, yeah. there, there has been no accountability. You say, oh, well, we lost, you know, the Pentagon lost another $220 billion or $250 billion. I mean, like if we, you know, the same government that wants to audit our bank accounts, if we have a $601 Venmo account, uh, is fine losing 220 billion billion with a b like it's unfathomable now of course i'm sure that's more money that's getting sent to ukraine in other roundabout ways and they're uh, but that we're we're creating an oligarch class of billionaire that's just pilfering from it and our even republican senators seem you know with perhaps yourself uh i know bill haggerty was against it obviously you know jd vance but that's maybe it like that's you know, there may be two or three others, but it's it's shocking to me that no one else wants to even know where this kind of money is. I mean, this is money that could build schools, uh, that, that could do so much to take care of our veterans at home. And like those people aren't even considered anymore. I mean, the American people that I speak to, you know, literally feel like they're second class citizens in their own country oftentimes. And again, it's also hard to argue with that. Well, and you're exactly right, because when you look at the federal government budget, it should be about priorities. And it seems many times that our veterans, that people right here at home are not the priority. And what we would like to do is change this. You know, there is a concept I've been working on which would initiate government reform system-wide because we're $34 trillion in debt. And what we need to do is freeze federal spending, federal hiring, and federal salaries. And then we need to move these agencies out of Washington, D.C. and begin to drain the swamp. And turn this government back to being a representative government and a government of, by, and for the people. Because right now, the people are not trusting what they're hearing and seeing from this administration. And they see every day there's two tiers of access. 
two tiers of treatment, and definitely two tiers of justice. And they're tired of it because they're the ones footing the bill. Mm -hmm. And this is not what they expect from their government. Well, I mean, I think a lot of this really raises the larger questions about you know, what role do we want our government to have in our lives? Yeah. I mean, it seems some, you know, just an all-encompassing role, they will, you know, govern me harder. Uh, it, it's it's sort of crazy. And it seems like on the issues that matter most, like protecting our border and protecting public safety, the drug trafficking and human trafficking crisis, we see Democrats, and again, even some of these Republicans, especially in the Senate, where there's just so many few fighters they're literally failing to meet the moment. They, they they are not in tune even remotely with the people that they're there to represent. You know, why is that? Why is it that, you know, it, it, the House, you have some of the same problem, but not nearly as much. But in, in the Senate, uh, the disunion uh, between the people they're there to represent and, and sort of the desires of the Washington, D.C., you know, whether it's the swamp, the beltway, uh, the deep state, uh, it, it, it's so crazy that it can be that far off, and yet people still keep getting elected. It's really kind of astounding to me. Uh, I'm one of those, I come home every sing single weekend. My family is all in Tennessee. We don't live in D.C. And when you're out and about, and I visit with every one of our 95 counties every single year, and you're hearing firsthand from people about the impact of the border, the impact of inflation, their concerns over national security, their concerns about our young men and women who are in the military, their concerns about a lack of a defined strategy to protect the sovereignty of this nation, and their concerns about economic security, job security, access to health care. These are real live issues that people are dealing with every single day. And I find it so interesting that there are people that are not home and talking to people every weekend and um that there's there is that divide between the way some people not all but some people the vote and what you hear when you look at polling or issues that are prevalent in their states and districts, and you wonder how there can be such a separation. But I think it's one of the reasons it makes 2024 so vitally important yeah. that we elect people that are going to represent our views, like I said, from the courthouse to the state house to the White House, because they are, you've got elected officials that are out of touch at each of these areas and people with their hard-earned tax dollars, hard-working people are the ones that are paying for government to be in place in their communities, in their state, and in this country. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I always say it feels like it's an easy existence uh, to be a Republican in Washington, D.C., if you sort of cave 
uh, when it actually matters to the constituency. I mean, you, you've dealt with some of this. I mean, I, I guess last cycle for you, uh, yeah, Taylor Swift, only because it's relevant to the news today, came out against you. But guess what? It didn't matter because the people knew you and you knew the people. You actually spent that time in the state that they understood exactly what it is. So the biggest pop star or whatever can you know do their nonsense and make it political, and yet it didn't actually matter because you're out there actually talking and, and listening to the people. Uh, too many others in Washington, D.C., they, they, they moved to Washington, D.C. They represent, you know, X, Y, Z state, uh, but they don't even go back to visit anymore. Well, and that is why I think it's not a great idea for people that are in the House and the Senate to live in Washington, D.C., because you lose that proximity. You know, yesterday at church, I had a, a woman come to me and she said, I am more worried than I have ever been. And I worry every single day. Mm -hmm. And she has kids that have are in college and are just finishing college. And she's worried for them about the potential for their careers. She's worried about safety. Uh, she's worried about another terrorist attack here on U.S. soil. And I really appreciate when people walk up and have those conversations with me. You know, a lot of times they agree with me. There are times that they don't agree. Yeah with me on issues. But the point is, they I am hearing firsthand from them. Well, some of that fear, I mean, it, it seems to uh, obviously be justified. You see you know, the random attacks, you see you know, where it's coming from, you see so many illegals being involved in all of these uh, wow. crimes that you're seeing reported. And I guess the Biden administration recently, or in the last week, issued an order that will shield Palestinians in the United States from deportation for 18 months via a program called, I guess, Deferred Enforcement Departure. Uh, you know, this comes amid major concerns about Hamas-linked extremists that are already here in the country. You saw some of the lunacy, uh, you know, after the October attacks uh, happening on college campuses and in major cities across the country. You know, what level of concern do you have uh, about this order and how it seems to, you know, protect, you know, a class of people that could, you know, some I'm sure are great and others could be uh, absolutely terrible. We're just going to give them blanket immunity for 18 months. It seems lunacy. I, I, again, you know, the second class citizen in your own country concept, uh, you know, seems to ring a bell each and every time I see one of these orders coming out of Biden's White House. Well, you're right about that. And, I look at it this way. When I heard about Biden's order of protection that was there for Palestinians, I it caused me to think back through his entire administration. What has Joe Biden done? He has done everything he possibly can do to make illegal immigration legal. Now, when President Trump left the White House, we had the securest border that we had had. We didn't have large numbers of terrorists coming to our border or people of interest, nor did we have hundreds of thousands of people coming in a month. We had what was considered to be a secure border, a wall going up. Joe Biden comes in on day one, and he begins 
to execute executive memos, executive actions, executive orders that are going to weaken not only border security, but immigration law. In his first 100 days, he took 94 actions, 94, to make the border more open and to weaken immigration law. Now, we have seen what that has done. Last year, Border Patrol told us we had people from 170 different countries come to the border. If you look at the month of December alone, December 2023, when you had people from China, from Russia, Iran, you had people from Syria, from Pakistan, uh, you had people that were coming in from countries of interest, and they were coming in not just in ones or twos or threes. Don, they're coming in the hundreds and thousands. Now, this should be alarming to each and every one of us. The fact that on Joe Biden's watch, you have had north of 300 known terrorists on that watch list that have come to that southern border. Now, all of these numbers that I've just used, they're in the ones that Border Patrol intercepted. Think about the gotaways mm -hmm. and the numbers that are in those known and unknown gotaways. And that's where the really bad guys are because they're smuggling in the drugs. They're smuggling in people that have criminal backgrounds. And you referenced earlier the criminals that were being cleared out of the jails in Cuba and sent across into the U.S., these are not people that are coming here for economic activity. We have seen that in New York with the beating up of police by the Venezuelan gangs. So, of course, people are right to be concerned and they're right to question what this administration is doing about that issue of border security because it is where our foreign policy and our national security meet right there at that southern border. Yeah, the fact that that one, you know, I, I, we all understand what they're doing. They're importing a voter base because they're losing the base here that would vote for these ridiculous Democrat policies. And if they create dependence, uh, you know, I guess that's a win for them, you know, playing the long game if you're a Democrat. But the fact that there's literally no concern as it relates to the terrorism side of things. You know, again, the terrorists are going to be well-funded. If they've caught 300, imagine how many thousands got across because they are a little bit better funded. They're more tactically able. They're coming in through different ways with a lot more support structure than, you know, the average person coming across the border. I, the fact that that's not a concern to them. You, you, I mean, you do have to wonder. I, I always say, you know, if you were trying to destroy a country from within, what would you do differently than today's Democrat policy? And the fact that that isn't somehow even looked at as different, it's, just, it's, it's open, well, it doesn't matter. I mean, they're putting their own children into harm's way and they couldn't care less, which tells you really everything about, you know, their thoughts and views of our country as a whole. And that should scare everyone a lot. Well, it should scare everyone alive because when you look at the way this administration tries to encourage 
lawlessness. You can look at the defund the police agenda. You can look at the disrespect and so many other issues that are there that affect our culture and affect society. And this push to make illegal legal, finding ways for illegal immigration. Um, I, I, I think that it, and it, all of that leads into that two tiers of treatment, two tiers of access, two tiers of justice in our country. And there again, this is what people are growing really tired of. So legislatively, you've also, speaking of sort of safety, our kids are you know first and foremost in my mind. You've recently co-sponsored a bill called the Kids Online Safety Act. I guess that would place new restrictions on big tech platforms and the content that they can show to children. That's a really big deal. We see some of the stuff in its lunacy. You know, you're, I know you're not allowed to use the word groomers anymore, but you see a lot of very nefarious groups doing something that could uh, could be described as nothing other than grooming. Uh, but there's been a lot of pushback on the legislation that could be used, uh, you know, that it could be used as a tool for censorship and stuff like that. But I see that coming out from some rather odd uh, groups. Can you explain the law and what it would actually mean in practice? Because there's, I'm sure, a very big discord between the law that you helped write and the way it's being spun by, let's call it the, you know, trans mafia, you know, and others out there that are doing uh, that are doing their thing, but with the full assistance probably of big tech and the mainstream media. Well, the Kids Online Safety Act is a piece of legislation Senator Blumenthal and I have worked on in a bipartisan manner for the last three years. We are so pleased that we've been able to work through this process to the point we now have 60 Senate members who are co-sponsors that join us on this legislation. This is not a censorship bill. This is a safety by design and puts the responsibility on big tech to make certain that the virtual space is going to be a safe space for our children. It establishes a duty of care. It requires that these social media platforms go through an audit every single year to make certain they're complying with the law. It requires them to open their algorithms and to give parents and kids the ability to set those settings in a manner that they're not going to be constantly fed all of this about eating disorders and videos on how to commit suicide or self-harm, or they're not going to be meeting pedophiles and drug dealers in the virtual space. And Don, there is a, a mental health crisis with our nation's teens and young people. And you can go talk to all sorts of pediatricians, psychiatrists, school principals, teachers, parents, and they will tell you much of it is because of what kids are exposed to online. Oh, and 100%. Like, you didn't see these things. There was no, uh, all of, you know, you mentioned whether it was teen suicide, whether it was sort of the, you know, I, I decided to be trans at five, you know, all of these things, they, they never existed until we just sort of 
started force feeding it. And the algorithms, frankly, have been so favorable to that. I mean, I, I always say, you know, that in today, the radical trans you know, movement in America is by far the most privileged class in society. They can do literally nothing wrong uh, in the eyes of the mainstream media and big tech and therefore uh, you know, the, the world more broadly. But wh where's the pushback coming from uh, on something like this? I mean, this feels like, again, the perfect sort of Chinese psyop if you're trying to destroy a country, attack the youth, make them confused, give them all sorts of, just literally create out of thin air all these disorders that wouldn't otherwise uh, exist. Um, where's the pushback coming from? Because it, it feels like this is something that should be you know, 100 percent uh, of the United States Senate on board, not just 60. And let me say, this is not a censorship bill. There is nothing in this bill that is about censorship. This is a bill to protect children in the virtual space and give them the tools that they need so that they can control what is coming in on their feeds. And but, you know, Senator Blumenthal and I have said time and again, the the big tech companies have had an army of lawyers and lobbyists that have fought having the Kids Online Safety Act. The reason they have done it is this. When kids are online, they are the product. Mm -hmm. And what they have to do is keep them online longer because when they're online longer, the data is richer and they get those eyeballs. And the valuation of these tech companies is set on how long they can keep your eyeballs glued to the screen. Mm -hmm. So the longer kids are watching, the more money they are making. And I think this is why in our hearing a couple of weeks ago when I confronted Mark Zuckerberg about all the pornography and the sex trafficking and the drug trafficking that takes place on meta platforms. And I said, doesn't this... I violate your community service standards and your terms of service. And he didn't want to answer that. But what he did was to push back because I told him, I said, it seems as if you're developing the premier sex trafficking platform for teens. He said, well, that's ridiculous. But you know what, Don? It is not ridiculous because in real life, that is what is happening to these kids. They meet someone online. They think that is a 16-year-old guy. They send pictures of themselves that are inappropriate. Then they get into a sextortion scheme, or they go meet what they think is a 16-year-old, and it turns out to be a 40-year-old, and then they're given some kind of drug, and then they end up in a very bad situation. Some of these kids don't make it out. We have met with hundreds of parents, hundreds, that their child has lost their life or has committed suicide or ended up meeting a drug dealer online. And to me, as a mother and a grandmother, this is 
heartbreaking. It is gut-wrenching because this is something that did not have to happen. If you owned a liquor store and you sold liquor or let kids in your liquor store, they would padlock you and haul you to jail. If you were a market and you sold tobacco to kids, they would lock your doors. If you had pornographic magazines at the checkout counter, they would come in and they would shut you down and fine you. If you had a strip club, you couldn't let kids in that. But online, our precious children are exposed to this. It has been the Wild West. And we are saying enough is enough. Let's give parents and kids a toolbox. Let's open up these algorithms. Let's make certain that there is safety by design, a duty of care, and that our children will be able to use these online platforms in a safe manner. Listen, it, it, it seems reasonable. And some of the pushback I'm, I'm seeing, it, it's it's almost like, it, it, honestly, the, the pushback is so ridiculous. It's as though they're acknowledging what you're saying is 100% right, but it doesn't matter because the money's worth it and they don't they couldn't care less. Uh, and I'm not just saying even from the tech platforms, I'm saying from you know some of the uh, affected communities who seem to have weaponized a lot of this to you know create uh, you know, from your children, uh, what they'd love in the world. And it's, it's absolutely sad to see it going on right now. Yeah, it really is. And we're just determined. We're so grateful for the 60 senators that have joined us. We're grateful for the 200 or plus organizations that have come out in support of the legislation. And, uh, we know that the parents who have been so effective are um, they are working Capitol Hill to try to get this passed and to get it uh, signed into law so that parents and teens will be able to protect themselves in the virtual space. It's the right thing to do, but like I said, you've got that army of lawyers and lobbyists from big tech oh, yeah. and they're they're hitting at us every single day. Well, I, listen, I, I just see it in my own algorithms when I when I look at what I'm posting on some of the platforms that we're talking about. And, you know, hey, it's election season, so I'm getting about 10 percent of what I'd normally get. And if it's political, I'm getting almost nothing. And it you know, they, they very much uh, have their thumb on the scale of, of these things. And while they're you know, they pretend not to. And it's across the board. It's just not the reality of how it works. Uh, I've been sort of I've borne witness to that over the last eight years. Uh, and it's absolutely disgusting, but they've been very effective doing their part. So I, I hope we can certainly shut this down because I can't think of something really uh, more important. So uh, thank you for your work on that. And I guess l lastly, really more broadly, I'd love you to talk about sort of the state of the 2024 race, the momentum you see uh, from, you know, not just my father's campaign, but from, you know, other conservatives that that need to get in there. I think we thought we had a lot more of it in 22 uh, and you know, that, that wasn't the case. You didn't get sort of the red wave that based on the data, based on common sense, uh, you know, should have been, you know, what, what issues do you think are going to decide this election in November? 
The border is item number one. As I said, this is the impact people feel in their lives and in their communities every day. And every sheriff, every police officer I meet with says, Marsha, we cannot handle the drug issues, the human trafficking, the sex trafficking until you secure that southern border. And they want to see this administration, and they certainly want to see the Trump administration that will begin in 2025 secure that southern border. The second thing is inflation. And the amount that you are paying at the grocery store and what you're paying at the pump to fill up the car, that is just... People can't make ends meet. And when you see the price of groceries, the price of clothing, and then you hear the White House say, oh, inflation's only 3.5%. Um, sure it is. <laughs> As I was, I'm the son of a billionaire, Senator, you know, from Manhattan. And like, honestly, I'm pissed off when I go to the supermarket. I, you know, I, if, if I feel it, I promise you, it's it's much more tangible to uh, to real Americans. I, I'm self-aware enough to realize that and that the fact that our White House is not uh, probably tells us all we need to know. Yeah, great story on that. I was out in one of my counties. County commissioner drives nearly 30 miles to work each day. She has three high school kids. She said they were boom, 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 one right behind another. And she said, Marsha, I cannot fill up the the car and the grocery cart in the same week. She said, I have to do the pick and choose. And I think that that's the way so many people feel, the cost of fuel. And, you know, then they look at these EV mandates yeah. <laughs> and they say, how do they expect us to buy an electric vehicle? and all the problems that come with the EV mandate. And they're just, uh, they can't believe uh, that food costs are up about 20%, gas costs are up about 35, home heating and cooling is up 38%. But you've got these chuckleheads sitting in Washington, D.C., in the Biden administration that wanna say, oh, Inflation's not that bad. We're getting it down. Oh, no, you're not. You've got a long way to go to get it to where it was in 2020. The day Donald Trump walked out of the Oval Office, inflation was at 1.4%. 1.4%. And people know. People are smart. They know what they're paying when they check out at the grocery store and what they were paying a few years ago or even last year or the year before. They know what's happening. Yeah, they, they also realize that if you have a hard time spending $75 to fill up your tank, you're probably not buying a $75,000 electric vehicle. <laughs> you know, <laughs> just just minor details like that. But uh, Senator, uh, thank you so much. Uh, really appreciate your time. Really appreciate you fighting back, really, in the United States Senate, especially uh, against the Ukraine sanity. Um, uh, we, we need more warriors out there, so I'm, I'm glad you're doing some of that bidding. It, it, great to have you. So Tennessee Senator Marsha Blackburn, folks, 
Uh, check her out, follow her, and uh, support those who are actually fighting back. So we really appreciate you. You got it. MarshaBlackburn.com. Thanks. Thank you. And guys, coming up, we're going to be speaking with North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum. Uh, he actually ran for president. The press wouldn't give him too much attention because he actually agreed with Trump and really liked him. Uh, so he has some great ideas. He's run a great state. He's one of the most entrepreneurial governors that are out there. So don't go anywhere. And in the meantime, guys, be sure to go check out The Wellness Company, a leader in providing emergency medical kits. Like we saw with COVID, supply chain chaos, lockdowns, Fauci failures, all of it can make it harder to get the medicine you and your family need in a time of crisis. With the Wellness Company's medical emergency kit, you're empowered to take control of your health. The kit includes eight life-saving medications, including amoxicillin, the Z-Pak, ivermectin, to keep on hand, along with a guidebook for safe and easy use. So whether you're talking about tick bites, to COVID, to extreme public health outbreaks, every scenario is covered. You avoid the high costs, the hospital wait times, and take control of your family's health needs. Go to twc.health slash triggered, like the wellness company, twc.health slash triggered, like the name of the show, for a 15% discount on the emergency medical kit. That's twc.health slash triggered. And joining me now, folks, North Dakota governor, former presidential candidate, great all-around guy, tech entrepreneur, uh, all of the things we probably actually could use some more from, from our politicians, uh, Governor Doug Burgum. Governor, great to have you here. Uh, appreciate you doing this. And I, you know, I'd like to start by giving you a chance to introduce yourself to the audience. Obviously, you, you ran for president, but because you didn't just take pot shots at Trump, they weren't going to give you a lot of the attention. I actually said, hey, after the first debate, uh, you know, I said, you know what? That, that guy actually is speaking common sense. And he's got an interesting story because you actually come from the business world that so few of our politicians actually come from. So you have an interesting story about a career in tech uh, and a business and then getting into politics. But you were born and raised in North Dakota, went to Stanford Business School built an incredible business. Can you give a little bit of a rundown uh, of your story, how you went from that to politics? Because I, I think it's pretty fascinating. Well, thank you, Don, and great great to be with you. And thanks for all you do for the country uh, and your family. Appreciate it so much. Uh, but yes, I grew up in this town, Arthur, North Dakota, 300 people. Uh, I know you've hunted in North Dakota. You know yeah. what the Great Plains is like, but what a fantastic place to grow up. Uh, from there, uh, North Dakota State undergrad, uh, got into a Stanford Business School on a fluke. I had a chimney sweeping business where literally I was the chimney sweep. And so there was an AP article that went out nationwide with me on top of a chimney wearing top hat, tucks and tails uh, in 10 below zero. And that caught the eye of the admissions director. So into Stanford, I uh, came out of there, I uh, was working in Chicago. Uh, North Dakota was on the decline. All the young people were leaving. Uh, the economy was in the tank. Uh, and here we go. Uh, I, I saw my first Apple II computer with VisiCalc, and I was like, wow, that's going to change the world. So I, I had my dad had passed away when I was a freshman in high school. He was a World War II Navy vet. Uh, the I had 160 acres of farm ground. I literally mortgaged that. I literally bet the farm to become the seed capital for a startup called Great Plains Software. And then we uh, we worked uh, the next uh, 
uh, 15 years, uh, turned it into an overnight success story. After 15 years, lots of ups and downs, went public, had a great run as a public company, got acquired by Microsoft. I stayed there for seven years and, and helped build Microsoft uh, and in their business solution side of that business. And then after I left there, uh, I never left North Dakota. I was commuting from uh, Fargo. We had a had built a company with 2,000 team members before we got acquired. We had 1,200 in Fargo, 400 rest of North America, 400 rest of the world. So had an opportunity to see the world, see how China was stealing software from us 30 years ago. I had had a lot of great experiences, but then I moved back to North Dakota and then moved back, but I stopped commuting to Seattle and then uh, started two more companies uh, in North Dakota and the tech business was involved in a lot of other software startups. Did that right up to 2016, uh, and and like the like your dad, the former president, he and I were both outsiders running in 2016. Uh, I was uh, I was the long shot in North Dakota. He was the long shot for America. We got elected at the same time, and I tell you, as a governor, uh, having a chance to uh, to be a governor under President Trump or now being a governor under uh, Joe Biden, it's a world of difference. It's win at your back versus win at your face. I, it taught. I, I, well, I, I want to you know unpackage the you know sort of the old, you know bet the farm because you you quite literally bet the farm on this thing, which is sort of you know may, maybe the American dream. Uh, you, you still have the farm, but uh, you still have that. Did you keep that in the family, or did it get a little too hard to manage the farm? Nope, uh, it's the original farmland uh, still still in the family. It always will be. I, that's a something we'll treasure. My I had grandparents that had had uh, you know immigrated and homesteaded in America and uh, that's something we'll always hang on to. Uh, that's great. So talk uh, yeah talk about that a little bit maybe the, the the four years under Trump and now you have let's call it three and a half years uh, under Biden. you know what what have the differences been you know in terms of being a governor? I think throughout COVID we saw just how important uh, governors are frankly in in many cases probably far more important than you know a lot of our other sort of you know, federally elected officials uh, from our own states, uh, you know, the governorships matter. And as a business guy, you could probably also discern uh, the difference. Can you uh, can you talk about some of those differences? Well, it's 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 so stark and such a contrast and America needs to understand this. But uh, when you're a governor, you're you're leading a business. It's an operating role. This isn't a legislative role. It's not you, you know, you don't put on a jersey and and yeah. you know pick sides and just throw words at each other. You actually have to deliver services. You've got to, you know, plow roads, you've got to, you know, education, healthcare, all these things that you have to do, uh, water projects, infrastructure. Uh and and the the, the framework that you set in terms of tax and regulatory can either attract talent, talent and capital to your state and your economy thrives, you know, or you can have a, a, a regulation, regulatory approach and drive capital away. And so in North Dakota, we just say innovation, not regulation. And that mat- matched so much with the Trump administration, uh, you know, with, with President Trump. What we had was someone who actually understood that the states created the federal government, not the other way around. We were treated as operating leaders that were leading states. Uh, under the Biden administration, it's nonstop, one size fits all. We know better than you. We've got a regulation. We're going to jam it down on the states and we're going to do it our way when their way, of course, is anti energy, anti US energy, anti liquid fuels, anti agriculture. 
Uh, you know, we're a border state. I mean, they're about open borders. I mean, everything about it, economy, energy, national security, which includes border security, 180 degrees in the wrong direction under Joe Biden. And we were going in the right direction under President Trump. And so it is one of the reasons that, that I'm supporting President Trump is because it's so important for the country uh, for us to get going in the right direction again. Yeah. How, how is the impact on the energy sector? Obviously, that's a big one in North Dakota. Uh, it's, you know, it, it's a big deal for our country. But, it, you know, I, I also feel it's not just the business side of that. It's also security, not taking, you know, oil and gas from Iran, the world's leading state sponsor of terror or Venezuela or regime. Even this administration didn't recognize before they basically made it impossible for us uh, to do these things. Uh, how has that affected the state? And, and, and are the people feeling it and understanding what's going on? Well, you're, you're, you're spot on, Don, on, on these issues, because you cannot separate energy from national security and from global stability. And the Biden administration uh, is just it's unbelievable what they're doing uh, with Russia. Our our Swiss cheese sanctions on Russia has turned Russia, you know, into one of the largest exporters of of oil and gas. And they're and of course, who are they selling to China, Iran? Uh, they're selling half of their production now. Their sanctions are off. It's going to China. Uh, China's refilling their strategic petroleum reserve at discount prices at a time when Joe Biden drained our strategic petroleum reserve in half ahead of the midterms just to get price down at the pump. He turned a strategic, meaning like when World War III comes strategic, yeah. he turned a strategic petroleum reserve into a political tool to help gain votes. And you mentioned Venezuela, six and a half million people have fled this corrupt country, many of them piling into our southern border. I was just down at the border on Friday, uh, one of the top three countries where people are coming from, Venezuela, and then we're helping them. So our energy policies, I, I feel like that Russia, China, Iran wrote the Biden energy policy. And under President Trump, it made sense. We're going to sell energy to our friends and allies, stop buying it from our enemies. Doesn't seem like it should be rocket science, uh, but it is. I mean, do you, do you feel that you, you know, obviously North Dakota is going to be a, you know, a very red state, very conservative. You're a conservative governor. Uh, do you think this administration looks at you differently because of that as well? Whereas the sort of, you know, are artificially trying to help the, the blue states and the, the crazy policies associated therewith while sort of disproportionately affecting your states? Well, it's, it's absolutely blatant. Uh, when under President Trump, uh, when we had a, you know, the global pandemic, if there was resources being distributed to the states, it was being distributed on a per capita basis. I mean, everybody's got people, count the number of people, give them their percentage uh, share of support. When Joe Biden immediately got in, they changed the formulas and said, no, we're going to give money to the places that had the highest unemployment. Well, that meant that it was going to blue metros, you know, that were all on lockdown. All these sanctuary cities got way more money per capita than a place like North Dakota that was open. Our economy was still going. Uh, and right now, today, we've got among the lowest unemployment and the highest workforce participation in the nation. So we got less. So the bad policies that hurt our students and hurt America got more money and the people that were doing it right got less. It's just blatant, whether it's and then take the student loan student loan stuff. I mean, the forgiveness for student loans in North Dakota, we've got a student loan program at the state level where everybody, every kid that's got a student loan is actually paying their loans. So when he's doing student loan forgiveness, it doesn't help anybody in North Dakota. It helps the yeah. people that voted for him. So they're actually, these are the largest political payoffs in the history of the country that the Biden administration is driving and they're driving it back to the places that voted for them. 
Well, I think without question, I mean, you know, when, when I think of you know, the, the oil workers, I mean, guys that are making really good salaries didn't go, you know, spend $300,000 to get a degree in underwater basket weaving that could never possibly pay itself back. I mean, you, you don't need a master's degree to realize that many of these degrees and, you know, doctorals that are being pursued in academia today, th there's no value to them. I mean, you know, if you want to educate yourself, that's great, but uh, you're, you're sticking that burden on a roughneck who's you know working his ass off in an oil field but making a good living i mean that's a tax on that guy who made yes. intelligent decisions who made the right decision for himself who decided to work uh who's making you know a six-figure living uh without the burden of debt and now you're asking that guy to pay for you know some rainbow-haired kid that spent 15 years in school and still has no marketable skills uh, that's disgusting. And honestly, that should outrage uh, everyone uh, who made those sort of responsible decisions. And uh, honestly, like, even if you're the one that did the other things, they, they should understand just how pathetic they are asking for those people to pay off, uh, you know, their loans. They think of themselves as so much better and they're the elite. But the reality is in this world, they, they can't even take care of themselves. Well, it's so right, and, and, and people should be outraged, uh, and people in North Dakota are outraged because this, our country was built on a simple principle. If you borrow money, you pay it back. You don't borrow money and then have your, you know, your neighbor or somebody who's working hard pay it back for you. Uh, it, it erodes the very nature of what our country was built on, and it's all, it's all in the pursuit of, again, pre-election votes. It started under Obama. He was the first to try it. The Biden administration keeps trying multiple ways, but uh, it, is, it is the definition of unfairness, and it erode, erodes the whole core of our country. So, you know, I guess you have an interesting story with what you talked about, you know, at, at Stanford, you ended up making friends with Steve Ballmer, who, you know, became the CEO of Microsoft. I mean, you're from your farm guy, you know, from North Dakota that made it big in Silicon Valley and in, and in big tech. You know, how what was that like? Right. I mean, you see Silicon Valley today is maybe different than Silicon Valley in the 80s. I mean, sort of the, the heart of liberal extremism. And I'm, I'm not even sure the smart guys believe it. But the problem is, uh, at, at this point, you know, the inmates are running the asylum over there. Uh, you know, what was that like? How, how did those relationships uh, you know, start? How did they persist? What would they be like today? You know, being a conservative governor, with, with businesses, you know, that started off in tech and, you know, perhaps the the antithesis of what you what you started off as. Well, in, at the beginning, uh, there wasn't much politics in Silicon Valley. Uh, you want to call that as sort of it, even though we yeah. were never there, we were always based in North Dakota building this global company. But it was all about innovation. It was innovation, not regulation. And that uh, American technology industry uh, the advances that we made helped keep America at the forefront of the global economy. It helped us retain our status as the number one economy in the world. And free markets and technology took a billion people out of poverty worldwide over a period of 20 years. That's never happened before in history. That America should be proud of that. Mm -hmm. And then somewhere along the line in the last 10 years, things have got twisted. And you've got a, a group 
uh, I feel like Silicon Valley split. Uh, there's a people that are literally splitting. They're moving to Nevada, you know, Texas, Florida. Uh, they're getting the, out of there because of the high taxes and because of the uh, the the whole idea that somehow uh, there's a set of ideals that are opposed to the whole capitalism which created the wealth in the first place. Nothing is crazier than than uh, you know billionaires uh, that are supporting Biden. I don't I don't get uh, I don't get what it is that they're trying to achieve when they're they they made their money, they achieved their success, they created these jobs because of free markets, because of competition, uh, and not because of some some uh, ideology that's coming out of the uh, you know the liberal elite coast. So I, I, it, right now, it, I think there's a big a big split. Uh, but still, there's an opportunity going forward. I'm very optimistic that we have an we have an opportunity with what's coming with AI. We have an opportunity uh, to shrink government. We all want to shrink government. Government's too big. Government is so overloaded. In North Dakota, we've been able to reduce the size of government. Uh, we're applying technology everywhere we can in a common sense way. I mean, you know, why would you have someone, you know, drive for three hours to a DMV motor vehicle site to get a number to wait in line to get a driver's license when they've got a job and they're working when we could just have them renew their driver's license online on their phone and never have to drive anywhere and we don't need the building we don't need the person behind the you know behind the glass that's uh, you know dealing with all of the paperwork i mean there's so much waste in government and coming in as a tech guy and a business guy to watching how we've been able to automate and drive cost out i mean i i think that that even every single federal employee, 20% of their job is some mind-numbing, soul-sucking work that they don't want to do. And if you come in with the right ideas, you could take out you know, 20% out of every agency without changing one thing, and you'd have better services. Then you could say, well, maybe we don't even need these agencies. Let's move it all back to the states. But just right off the bat, I mean... Tech government is 20 years behind the private sector uh, in just applying basic common business principles that would serve the taxpayers uh, like the customers that they are. So it's an interesting thing, I mean, with AI. I mean, obviously, you see the government bureaucracy growing. Uh, you know, as AI, uh, you know, I remember when it sort of started, all the journalists were like, oh, you, you farmers better learn to code. But it seems like they're the ones that are being displaced. You know, the guys that kind of sit behind a desk, ultimately, you know, sort of, you know, Lawyers, some of the white collar jobs, you know, a journeyman lawyer can be replaced with AI probably in the not too distant future. Uh, as it relates to those government bureaucracies, though, do you think a what are those people going to do? I mean, if you're a bureaucrat, you're not really good at much. You're, you're pushing a little bit of paper back and forth when they're displaced by AI. You know, what happens to those people? Again, I don't you're not displacing, you know, a roughneck in an oil field anytime soon. You know, a, a farmer. Uh, you know, a job, a carpenter, uh, something that needs to be there. Those blue collar jobs you're actually not getting rid of. A lot of the white collar jobs are probably, you know, they can be dispensed with like that uh, with the rate that the technology is improving. What, what do you think happens there, uh, both good and bad? Well, I, I think that displacement would be great. I mean, for, for America, because we've got when you've got government jobs, it's producing cost, not value. And if we can move those jobs, you know, out of a place where they're costing taxpayers and get them back in the private sector, maybe they've got to be reskilled, uh, you know, to to find those jobs. And we have 10 million jobs open in America. There's never been a better time to reduce the size of government than right now. Yeah. And we we can increase the productivity of the country, which increases our GDP, uh, lowers the burden of taxes on everybody. But part of that is, you know, if we could get, you know, a hundreds of thousands, if not a million 
you know, workers out of government at the state and federal level and get them back in the private sector. Well, that would be fantastic right now. And there's a window to do it. And Don, as you understand it, uh, it's these white collar, middle level jobs that are just pushing paper. Those are the ones that are going to be displaced very rapidly. Yeah, the people that were all about the learn to code when it when it first came out, they're, they're finding out very quickly that they may have to learn to code. Uh, I think that's sort of one of the great cell phones of all time. Uh, when they were talking about, again, the guys working on the oil pipeline, well, they should just learn the code. It's like, I'm, I'm watching the journalists just be displaced. I'm seeing all these, you know, kind of, you know, average, you know, but long, long legacy publishing type companies just go totally out of business. Uh, it, it, it's really interesting. It's sort of the reverse of what they thought was going to happen. They're the ones that are actually easily replaced. Yeah. And, and I can tell you right now for both uh, the, the big push that we're making in North Dakota with career and technical edu education, starting at the K-12 level and going up through our two-year and our four-year universities that we have, you know, if you want to go into, uh, you know, ag equipment repair today, uh, you're a computer scientist. I mean, a combine, yeah. a tractor, these things, it's software and computers on wheels. The level of sophistication, the GPS, the autonomy. I mean, the one thing the liberal elite completely underestimates, I, you know, you put North Dakota farmers up against anyway, the ones that are still in business are so sophisticated in their use of technology. And we've got a number of things going on at the state level right now, you know, driving towards autonomous farming. We've got one of the largest autonomous uh, efforts going on on, on on unmanned aerial system. We got the only the only place in the nation where we've got beyond visual line of flight uh, capability. And now we got 42 uh, unmanned aerial system startups that are here in a cluster around this test site. So, and, and we're building out the, the software system that the whole nation will end up using for air traffic control for detect and avoid when we end up, because there's going to be 10 times as many unmanned aerial systems in the air as there are manned. So we're on the leading edge of technology here across a number of things. And, and those are those jobs, We uh, there's all... We need people to fill those jobs, people that understand this technology. We don't need people that are pushing paper and raising costs for Americans. So, yeah, well, without question. I mean, I guess, you know, I, I want to ask a little bit more about that entrepreneurial spirit, because, I mean, you've, you've quite literally been called America's best entrepreneurial governor. You know, how, how does business experience help you navigating in politics? You know, I... It was, it was interesting for me sort of entering this world eight years ago, and I know we had some fun back in 16 up in up in North Dakota getting you elected. And But, you know, in business, I knew what people's motivations were. In politics, it's very different. Um, you know, everyone's looking to jump on that next campaign or figuring out their next grift or some other leak that gets them a favor somewhere else. It's, it is very different. Uh, what, what did you find sort of the biggest difference between running a company and ultimately running a state, running a government uh, and being in politics? Well, I, I think it's simple. It's uh, it's outputs and outcomes versus inputs. Uh, I got into the first budgeting cycle in North Dakota and I realized very quickly that if you had an, an, an agency or a group or a university or anybody, if their budget went up, they thought they were winners. And if their budget went down, they were losers. Mm -hmm. uh, when in fact, no one was looking at the outcomes. I mean, you know this from yeah. the business standpoint, you wouldn't, if you were at a, a group with a bunch of business leaders at a convention, no one would be bragging about, hey, I spent more to build that building than you did, or I spent more on marketing than you did. No, you'd be talking about customer acquisitions. You'd be talking about profits. You'd be talking about customer satisfaction. And so those are all outcomes of your work. So we've trying to reorient 
the whole state of North Dakota. We do a strategic planning process ahead of the budgeting process where strategy drives budget instead of budget driving strategy. And we get we got all of our agencies focusing on outcomes and publishing what those outcomes are that they're chasing. And with that, then we say, wow, there's a bunch of rules we don't need. Who created these rules? So we passed 51 out of 52 red tape reduction bills last year in North Dakota. I mean, we are trying to have this be the easiest, best place for people to do business because it's not the first place people think of. And we, so but we need capital and we need talent. And now we have like over $40 billion of capital that's lined up trying to come to our state because we're a state where you can actually be supported in an environment where people we want people to invest. We want people to create jobs. We want to do things that are innovative as opposed to right now, we're facing over 20 rulemaking efforts from the Biden administration. Every one of those rulemaking efforts might at a minimum be 800 pages long. And those 800 pages are filled with stuff that's come from people that have never set foot in our state. And it will choke and kill uh, the U.S. oil and gas industry. It'll choke U.S. agriculture. Uh, it is unbelievable what they're trying to get done. I, I know they're afraid they might lose in the fall. So they're trying to shove as much regulation as they can. It never even makes it on front page, doesn't even make it on page 18. But we're suing the federal government across multiple fronts right now to try to stop this madness because all none of it's based on science. None of it's based on the law. It's based on an ideology that one party is trying to drive. These aren't laws that have come from Congress. These are rules that are being driven by these you know, three-digit agencies that are driving, you know, Biden's thing. And, and again, when you come, when specifically on energy, their job is kill U.S. liquid fuels. We're going to go all EV. And if you're on EV, team EV, you're on team China because they control 85% of the rare earth minerals. If you're on team liquid fuels, then you're on, you're on team farmer, you're on team oil worker, you're on team USA. Yeah. So how, how do you, I know you announced you're not going to seek another term as governor. How do you see some of that through to make sure it doesn't happen? Because I think they would be crippling to not, not just North Dakota, frankly, all, all of these states. Uh, you know, these are regulations designed to give the regulator a job. Uh, it, it'll do nothing positive for the businesses. It's just, you know, a job that only this person can fix and you got to take care of them. They're, they're literally just creating busy work. You know, what, what role do you sell see for yourself in the future uh, as it relates to politics, making sure some of this stuff doesn't happen and, and combating it still? Because I, I know you care deeply about it. Well, we got 300 days left in our term here, and we're going to work hard every day to make sure we cement all these changes. Uh, happy to not last Thursday, Lieutenant Governor Tammy Miller announced that she's jumping in the race. Uh, like me, she was a CEO, private sector, CEO of border states a, in 27 states, 3,500 employees. Uh, she's been fantastic. She was our chief operating officer, new role recreated in North Dakota before she became lieutenant governor a couple of years ago when I appointed her. She's going to keep things rolling for us. Uh, so looking forward to uh, to her, you know, carrying that baton forward. And and then we've also, uh, you know, I, I think my most important job right now is help President Trump get elected. I mean, it doesn't matter who's the governor of, of a red state. If you have another four years, of the Biden administration, it is it's just wind at your face like you can't believe in terms of them trying to attack uh, U.S. energy. And as you said earlier, like literally the, the rules we have right now are empowering places like Iran. Iran was broke when 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 President Trump was in office. And now we gave got them a lifeline dollars. You know, yes. Russia made made one hundred and sixty billion extra on oil the first year of that war. They're paying for their war uh, with basically with our our with our energy policy, which is trying to kill us. And a couple of weeks ago, when the Biden administration said we're going to put a pause on LNG exports, I mean, this is 
This is they had to be jumping up and down inside the Kremlin going, wow. I mean, do they have like a Manchurian policy person working in the White House? I mean, that had to be the biggest celebration of the year. That's bigger than a victory in the Ukraine for them because it's where all the money comes from. How in the world we should be exporting LNG to Japan, to the Philippines, to Korea. We should be exporting from Alaska. We should be exporting from the Gulf. And they're putting a pause on it for environmental reasons. And I'll tell you, that's the biggest lie of all, because if you actually care about the environment, you would want to have every drop of energy and every electron produced in the United States because we produce it cleaner, safer, and smarter here than Venezuela, than Russia, than Iran. Any of these places don't even have an EPA. Uh, we do it better here. So if you cared about the global environment, you should try to shut down everybody else and have U.S. deliver all the energy. Yeah, instead, we borrow money from China to give to Ukraine while Russia's funding their wars with the Delta in the... It's... It, it, it's so stupid, it's mind-blowing. But, uh, Governor, thank you so much for what you're doing. Thank you for being uh, you know, out there on the trail with us uh, in, in this mission. It's absolutely critical, and uh, I look forward to seeing you out there sometime in the not-too-distant future. Well, it was, it was great uh, uh, being together in Iowa, New Hampshire, and, and uh, great to be with the president in Nevada. Uh, and whatever we're called on to do, we're going to do it. Uh, the First Lady and I are, are fully committed to uh, driving this thing through. And, again, it's so important to America – and, and I'm telling you, even if you're a Democrat governor in some state, uh, I bet you some of those folks are quietly cheering for President Trump because governors actually were respected uh, and treated as an essential part of this thing, as opposed to this crazy Biden regulatory one size fits all ideology that's going on. So it's it's really essential for the future of this country that President Trump get elected in November. So thanks, Don, for everything you're doing. And uh, it's great having someone like you that loves the outdoors, loves hunting, uh, loves your children, all the things that you do uh, helping in this cause. You've put so much energy in 16, 20, and in 24. And I just, on behalf of North Dakota, want to say thank you to you for your leadership and the difference you've made. Well, I really appreciate it. Thanks again. And uh, I look forward to seeing you out there soon because I'm sure uh, we, we, got, we got a lot to do in the next 10 months. So we, we got plenty of time. But uh, thank you very much, Governor. It's great to have you on. Thank you, Don. Guys, thanks so much for tuning in. Glad you could check that out. Make sure to go check out our great sponsors right after you share, right after you like, right after you subscribe, right after you send all your friends the links on Spotify and iTunes podcast so we can get it out there. We need you guys. I see the number of likes. Uh, it's not lining up with how many people are watching live right now, so fix that problem. Hit the button. It doesn't take much. Uh, and guys, make sure that you're supporting our great sponsors. We talk about it all the time. Give your money to the guys that share your values, not the people that hate your guts. It's why 1775 Coffee is joining forces with Rumble to support causes that matter most. Your purchase literally helps support veterans' causes, groups fighting to protect the First Amendment, the right to keep and bear arms, and so much more. Go to 1775coffee.com slash Don Jr. That's 1775coffee.com slash Don Jr. Get 10% off your order and support companies that support you. Also, check out the wellness company and their emergency medical kit. Take care of not just your caffeine needs, not just your financial needs with some of our sponsors, but take care of your health and your family's health needs. Go to twc.health slash triggered, like the name of the show, TWC, like the Wellness Co., twc.health slash triggered for a 15% discount off the emergency medical kit. You can see the links below. 
Go check them out. Support the causes that are pushing back against the insanity. Take control of your health, your financial well-being, etc. That's what a lot of this show is about. And us also introducing you to those sponsors who share our values and have the guts to have programming like this. So twc.health slash triggered. Get 15% off the emergency medical kit and take control of your family's health. Guys, thanks so much for being here. It's been great to be with you as always, and I look forward to seeing you in a couple of days.